Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough i reckon you can do this you know i believe you're going to get there the eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power it's a part of you it took half of my life my eating disorder and it literally nearly took my life but we, we've seen recovery in in kids in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endad.org.au. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Warren Ward with me. Now Warren Ward is a psychiatrist who has worked in the area of eating disorders for 20 years. He is the director of the Queensland Eating Disorders Service and associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Queensland. He is chair of the Queensland Health Eating Disorder Advisory Group and co-author of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatry, Clinical Practice Guidelines for Eating Disorders. In 2017, he received the Australian and New Zealand Academy of Eating Disorders Distinguished Achievement Award. In 2018, he was elected a Fellow of the International Academy of Eating Disorders. He has published more than 40 articles and book chapters, most of them on eating disorders. He was recently appointed Medical Director of Wandi Nerida, Australia's first residential program for eating disorders. Thank you so much for joining me today, Warren. Thank you, Millie. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, I wanted to ask you, what made you decide to specialise in eating disorders? Why are you so passionate about them? I often get asked that, and it's more what, what kept me in the field, I think, in that I really just started in eating disorders. I was at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. The person who was running the eating disorder beds had retired, and my director asked if I would would step in. And I said, yeah, sure, without really knowing much about what I was getting into. But what's kept me there for 20 years, and I love it, it's been just you know, a wonderful journey so far, has been maybe three or four things. I think the first thing is I started psychiatry after studying medicine to be a psychotherapist. I wasn't necessarily interested in medications and medications don't really work for anorexia. It's psychotherapy that is the key treatment. So I enjoyed that aspect of the work. Secondly, it really involved a team. I learned very quickly that there was no way that by myself I could help someone with anorexia recover. I needed the help of dietitian, nursing staff, psychologists and other professionals. And I'd recently done some training in business management, looking at how to make teams work together better. And I really love that idea of bringing that into play. And thirdly, and the thing that maybe keeps driving me now is I can just see the need for advocacy, like you're doing with your podcast, explaining to people what eating disorders really are and what you need to do to recover from them. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there in the community and a lot of stigma still, unfortunately, although that is definitely improving. There was one fourth thing, and that was I'm really interested in adult education, educating adults. And so a big part of my career has been training thousands of clinicians, whether they be other psychiatrists or emergency department doctors or GPs or nursing staff, about how they can all play a role in helping someone with an eating disorder recover. I'm a great believer that it's not just specialist treatment, but the whole health service and the whole community really needs to understand what eating disorders are so we can help prevent and manage them and help people recover. And that team approach is so key, isn't it? And unfortunately, there are so many parts where it's sort of lacking. And yeah, it definitely, I definitely see in my work as a coach, the more of the, that really multidisciplinary team pulling together and having that open communication makes such a difference in the efficacy of someone's recovery. 
And it actually makes it a lot, lot more enjoyable for me as a clinician yes. to work with other intelligent, creative people with not only their own disciplinary skills, but just their own perspective. You know, in any sort of enterprise, if you have a diversity of views, you'll come up with a better, what I call the wise mind of the team. And of course, in more recent years, we have the, the benefit of people with lived experience on that team, whether they be clinicians or whether they be peer recovery coaches, that's really added a lot. And hopefully, I'm hoping we can also talk about the role of people with lived experience in education and training of clinicians, because that's something I've been really had the pleasure to be involved in for some time. Well, actually, that was the thing that I was going to ask you next was what? why do you think lived experience is such an important part of recovery and being part, having people with lived experience as part of the treatment team? And how have you been involved with including that? To answer that, I, th- I think back to my first experience working in an inpatient specialist eating disorders unit. And when I arrived, I don't think it was really functioning very well. People were staying way too long. They didn't seem to be really, there didn't seem to be any defined targets of what they're trying to achieve during that admission. But also the nursing staff were really burnt out and somewhat cynical. They would see the same people with severe anorexia coming back time and time again. And if you're a nurse in an inpatient unit, you don't see people recover, you see them sick. And you know, me as a therapist, I would see them recover and not come back to hospital as well. And so at our first annual planning day, the first thing I did was invite someone who had recovered, who was had been a patient, to come in and talk for an hour at the start of our annual planning day. And I asked them to talk to the, especially the nursing staff, about what had the nursing staff done that had helped them get better, what had they done that had not helped, and what could be done to improve. And I also invited a family member of someone with an eating disorder, and that was the second hour. And that really set the stage for those clinicians to to be, they were just really blown away by how much this person had achieved since they'd left hospital. And it gave them a sense of hope and renewed energy to really help people get better. And one of the frequent thing they heard, the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough, I reckon you can do this. I believe you're gonna get there. Just simple things like that made a big difference. Rather than unfortunately Phrases like, oh, you're back again, you know, (laughs) or even worse, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, words are so powerful. I hear that from my clients all the time. It's like, you'll never guess, you know, I went back to Northside today and -and so-and-so said this to me or whatever it Mm. is. And I just, my heart breaks for them because they're going in trying to really, I mean, everyone you know, I think when they enter, most people when they enter inpatient really want to give it a go. They don't want to be there necessarily, but they do want to get better underneath it all, even though their actions on the surface might not portray that. Underneath there, there is that healthy self trying to fight for freedom. Yes, it makes me think of that that book that was actually a big help to us. It was Biting the Hand That Starves You by... Yes, by David Epstein. Thank you. I was yeah. just trying to remember David's surname. And that was that was really helpful to us as a team when we were starting off too, to think that there's the healthy person and then there's the eating disorder. And the eating disorder only cares about numbers. It doesn't really care about that person's freedom or sanity or life. Mm. And we are lined up like an army beside the healthy person to help them against that eating disorder. And we had David come and speak to our unit. And I think that helped the nursing staff too, to think, well, that's part of our role, to stand beside the healthy person. Yeah. David and Anne Epstein are absolutely incredible. When I was very much in the middle of my my 15 years with anorexia, I saw his wife Anne for many years, and it was my first experience of, of narrative therapy. And my mum and I, we would go together, and it was absolutely transformational in us understanding, no, at that point I didn't get well, but it was she would write letters to me on this typewriter Every week I would get this letter in the post. She didn't have computer. And she would write to me about, you know, what was happening and what she could see was happening with my healthy self and eating disorder self. And it was the first time I'd been introduced to that concept. And not only for me, but also for my mum, it was incredibly helpful. Yes. And even in the simplest form of the narrative therapy, externalising the disorder was really helpful to us as a team. So rather than blaming the person for their behaviours or blaming the anorexia, and, and you know, going hard on the anorexia, but easy on the person who's trying to deal with it. And yes. so, because so many people with anorexia are so self-critical and self-doubting and they need a framework to, to bolster up that there's always a little bit of hope, strength, fortitude, you know, belief that maybe they can get there. And I think that framework really helps. Oh, absolutely. Why do you think 
individualized. Why is you know why is individualized treatment so so important when we look at eating disorders? Well, I, I mean, I'm thinking that individualized treatment is important. Of course, so is team treatment and family treatment. But in my experience as an individual therapist, I mean, what is really important is the person needs a safe place with which to explore the different parts of themselves, explore how maybe they got there, how they're going to get out there. Often there's childhood things that have happened that has led the person to have a narrative in their head about if I, for example, if I don't eat, I won't have to feel and because feeling is unbearable. There might be a narrative, for example. And so I think if there's, if there's a place of trust and safety, the person can start to explore other ways of looking at the way they deal with feelings and thoughts and themselves. And here I'm thinking of another very influential book for me before I came into the area of eating disorders called The Metaphor of Play by Russell Mears. He's a psychotherapist in the, and a psychiatrist in the conversational school. But what his basic premise was that if you observe children who have poor attachments where there's been trauma or the, the mother's distracted, the child won't play. It just clings to the parent. Whereas if they feel secure, the child will sort of wander off and play knowing that mummy or daddy is, is close by. And he talks about in psychotherapy, it's important you need to create a safe place where the person feels able to, to play with ideas and different ways of thinking about themselves and, and food and all sorts of things. And so I'm not saying that all people with things have traumatic history. Mm. They don't, some do, but they do need a, a place to be playful and creative rather than using, using the same old things that they have used to deal with feelings because, you know, that definition... Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, hoping it will change. So it's to creating a safe place where they can do experiments to change, maybe even just for the next week, the way they approach life. So I think that individual therapy does create that, can help to create that safety if the therapist is, I would say, humble, open, trying to be curious themselves and open to together. Two another definition I've heard of psychotherapy is two people in a dark room trying to trying to find a key, and it's very dimly lit, but you need to work together. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always say that eating disorders tailor themselves to the individual and therefore the treatment approach needs to be tailored to the individual. And I guess when when we look at that, how, how important do you think that is rather than there being a blanket approach that I, this person is presenting with anorexia, therefore we will do A, B, C and D. And if that doesn't work, we will just do it again and again. Yeah, I believe that both manualised evidence-based treatments are important and also individual eclectic treatments. And in, in our the service I've worked in for a long time, the Queensland Eating Disorder Service, it was a really massive turning point when we actually got some funding to be able to provide evidence-based treatments like CBTE. And, and funders definitely like to be able to fund something that's got a demonstrated effectiveness. But in my private practice, I was able to see people where that treatment hadn't worked, hadn't been suitable, and I've been trained into long-term psychodynamic process-oriented therapies. And especially if people did have trauma or long-standing conditions, I would find that as a second-line approach. So I think you need both. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's very exciting to see that the focus of the Australian Eating Disorders Research and Translation Strategy, led by Inside Out Institute, is in collaboration with lived experience and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. From a consumer's view, this will make certain the research is more vigorous, practical and helpful to everyone managing someone's treatment through to recovery, not just the clinicians. What is being done presently to inform treatment and the therapeutic practice across the Queensland and national hospital system to involve lived experience and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders? Yes, well, that's a good question, and I don't know everything good that's going on, but I did have the honour of being involved with Eating Disorders Queensland, Ali Lee, Carolyn Coston. Over 10 years ago now, I remember a meeting where we were looking at how could we develop training for peer support. And I learned a lot just from sitting in those meetings and listening to, to Carolyn and, and others talk about the importance of support for that workforce. And so if there's going to be people with lived experience using that experience to help others, they need to be supported themselves. And they need to be trained in a variety of things other than their lived experience, just like any professional, and have ongoing support. So and I've seen that expand now with you know NDD and EDQ and there's other private solo practitioners as well. So I, and I've, I had some bad experiences early on where people, maybe even I invited them to come and speak and do some training, but they hadn't actually had the adequate support and the, they had a relapse. And so I've learned from that, like any 
just like all the psychiatry registrars I work with, they have intensive support and supervision themselves. So it's it can be a tough area. So we just all need that, the infrastructure to, to get support to do the important work we do. But I've seen, I mean, now at the inpatient eating disorders unit at the Royal, regularly a person with lived experience or two actually come together and talk to the, the inpatients there. The day program at Queds is regularly people with lived experience, not only always talking, but someone's doing yoga teaching or whatever other skills they have. And now I've had the pleasure of working at Bondi Nerida, where a lot of the staff have lived experience, nursing staff, psychologists and others, but also recovery navigators who are employed because of their lived experience. And so that is that has just led to a much more supportive, welcoming environment. And what I loved about Wandi Nerida, and I know, Millie, you've had a lot to do with helping to set that up, was even the environment, there was a lot of thought put into the furnishings, the paintings, the windows, the the physical environment. That had to be matched with some issues around safety and so forth, but it really, it's an environment where you want to come in and stay. And a lot of the hospital units I've worked in, I don't get that feeling. I think environment is so key in terms of, of healing. I mean, I even know when I was, when I was getting well, just going from very much a city environment being cold and wet in Auckland to coming here to the Sunshine Coast, being by the ocean every single day, the sunshine, the warmth and the difference that that made in my recovery. Just little simple things like that. And I think you're right. It's it's the furnishings. It's it not feeling cold and clinical. And I think then when you interweave the lived experience as well, there's just that kind of level of, of understanding and connection that, that comes with having travelled that same road. Absolutely. And yeah, clinicians don't always see. They can, we can actually become a bit blind to things that when, you, when they're pointed out by someone with lived experience, you know, obviously not conducive to healing. Yeah. Well, I think it's hard for anyone who hasn't been, I mean, an eating disorder is such a, a beast of a thing. It's quite hard. I think if I hadn't been through it, I would find it very difficult to fully comprehend what it's like to be inside one. And so, it, it, yeah, it's great to be able to see that, that lived experience being utilised. Now, parents and carers are, as we know, really valuable resources, but they're often overlooked in treatment plans and programs. As these people are often experts by experience of the individual being treated, what is present practice in the hospital system to respectfully include and involve them? That's a great question. A lot of thoughts come to mind, but one thought that comes to mind is the first week I started work in the eating disorder service at the Royal Brisbane, which was 20 years ago, Elaine Painter, who's since retired, said, first thing we're doing is going to this breakfast meeting. And we went to this breakfast meeting, which was a collection of a whole lot of people interested in the area of eating disorders. I say a whole lot of people. There weren't actually that many people. (laughs) There was maybe at that time 20, 25. But it included the Eating Disorders Association, which was a non-government organisation set up to support families and carers. That was its main purpose. So I got to meet some of the folks from there, was invited within weeks to come and speak to families and carers. And I really, you know, that's been an ongoing dialogue for me between families and carers and me sharing our perspectives and understandings. It's not me as an expert explaining things by any means, but there are some things I can help with. But a really revolutionary moment in my career was also being part of the At Home with Eating Disorders first conference. I think it was the second one in the world, or maybe been the first one, in the first one in Australia. It was, again, it must be nine years ago now. Mm-hmm. But there for two, three days, hour after hour, I just heard about brave parents mainly, but also people who'd recovered from eating disorders talking mainly about family-based treatments and how they just dug deep to do everything to help the person recover from this, from anorexia, very severe anorexia. And what was striking was, again, everyone had to be on the same page and coordinate in a really persistent effort. And parent after parent said it was the hardest thing they'd ever done in their life. And, you know, it was a war zone. And, but then we also got to see the results. And there were just so many tears at that conference. Of, and that I just really learned so much from listening at that conference. What's being done? I mean, even before that, Elaine Painter had also contacted Janet Treasure at the Mausley in London. And Janet Treasure and her colleagues wrote that wonderful book, A Skills-Based Approach to Working with Loved Ones with an Eating Disorder. And I learned a lot from going to those workshops too that the carers go to about looking at communication styles and having... So I think that was a bit of a breakthrough too because a lot of the focus have been with families with children. 
but families with adults and partners, it's all so important. And as I say to my patients, you know, we want as many people with fully nourished brains in the room as possible if we're going to beat this thing. So I want everyone who's in your support crew here together with that healthy bout of you so we can work against this, this strange thing that really is out to get you. Yeah, strange. That's a good word. Now, parents and carers definitely view the quality of research and treatment through a completely different lens than researchers and clinicians do. You know, they want the outcome of the research to be usable, valuable and timely. Evidence-based is often a term attached to practices and interventions during the treatment phase. How can parents and carers share their evidence base to inform the individualised care and treatment of their loved ones as they collect evidence every day on the loved one and their journey through to recovery? Yeah, I mean, the best, maybe I'll just start with looking at like the best example of how research can help and maybe some of the the not so good examples. So for me, one of the best examples is there have been nine randomised control trials into family-based treatment, as I understand, for people, young people. And those studies are where people have been randomly allocated to either individual therapy, say you've got a 15-year-old person with anorexia, or family-based treatment, a specific type of family-based treatment where the parents are supported in renourishing their child. Those studies show that if your child goes to individual therapy, they've got a 15% chance of recovery. If they go to family therapy, they've got a 70% chance of recovery. We didn't know that until we did the study. Before that, we, as I say, the clinician group, always thought that individual therapy must be the best for that group. So evidence-based approaches are really important for challenging our assumptions. The things we know are right, they're often not right. <laughs> and, you know, the, the lovely double-blind approach of where no one really knows who's getting what and, and rating people without knowing what treatment they've had is really important. So the scientific method, I think, is really important. But what's also really important is individual experience, and science doesn't do that very well. Or that, or that narrow view of science anyway. So I think what we need, first of all, is for parents and carers to have a voice early on in terms of allocating of research funding, in terms of planning of research projects, if there is a project, and of how it's, how it's delivered, the methods that are used, often qualitative. There's no use having effective treatment if, if everyone hates it and it's not very acceptable and you know, it doesn't sort of meet other needs of the, of the family. And so I think think we're slowly getting there in that regard, but I think that's really important. It's sort of like at every level, you need mm, that input yeah. of stakeholders. And, and when I did my business management training many years ago, it's all about at every level, you need the stakeholders, the customers, the people, the end users. I mean, all good businesses do this. Health has been a bit slow, um, but we're, I think, slowly. And, and when I say slowly, it's mainly through a lot of brave advocates like yourself actually challenging us to to have you involved. You know, it's a lot of movements. If we look at whether it's feminism or rights for people, it's been about people standing up, brave people standing up and actually making a bit of a racket. And I'm all for that. I think that's good. I think it's a really exciting time for eating disorders because I think there are so many people with lived experience feeling empowered by those who have gone before them to actually stand up and go, okay, I remember when I first kind of went very public with, with my story, there was, I remember so many people back in New Zealand going, what are you doing? Like, you'll never, do you, you think, what's this going to do to your career chances? And all of this, and I was like, I have to tell people what it's like. People need to know because of how much stigma and judgment that I experience, let alone I'm thinking, well, I don't want anyone else to have these things said to them. I don't want anyone else to be told you'll never make it, put her into palliative care. I don't want people to be told those things. And if I don't stand, I, ha- I have the ability to stand up and, and speak out. And I think the more people that do that, the more people feel comfortable, even if they don't want to do it publicly, to at least speak up to their family members and tell them, well, this is what it's like for me, or give an anonymous account or whatever it is. But I think all of those just add so much value. Well, I'd like to personally thank you for doing that because as a clinician, it's helped me to finesse and nuance my approach for you and other brave people who've and I've had the, the wonderful experience now many times of standing beside someone with lived experience, training a group of future psychiatrists, training a group of physicians, training a group of emergency department doctors. And you just see the nodding going on in the room and the eyes light up as those clinicians who really do have good intentions hearing from someone with lived experience. For example, I remember someone with, sharing with a group of emergency doctors that I'd been, they'd been up all night feeling their hearts sort of missing a beat and they knew they hadn't been eating enough and engaging in other behaviours. And 
they thought, I just don't want to go to the emergency department, I'll be ridiculed. And then they went and someone said, yeah, there's nothing to worry about, everything, all your tests are fine. You know, but what they would have preferred the emergency department doctors to say is, it's really good you had the courage to come in because this is a very serious illness that can have terrible consequences. And anytime you need to come in and check things, just come in and talk to us. And all the doctors are nodding, saying, okay, that's what I'll say next time, rather than try to be reassuring, but be realistic as well and, and be validating of the person thinking it is a serious problem. And it can seem like such a small change, can't it? But it just has huge ramifications. Mm. And I should mention, with those nurses that were very, I think, discouraged and burnt out many years ago, I found everything I said to them about maybe trying to be just a bit more caring and kind made no difference whatsoever. But when someone who was a past client of theirs came and spoke, it changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. First-hand experience is very powerful for all of us to hear about, I think. Now, explain the new term and the focus on very early intervention. Okay. Well, here I think of the, the Butterfly Foundation's report that was commissioned, well, they commissioned Deloitte to access economics to look at this. And Mr. Murray, who was the chair of the, the Commonwealth Bank, David Murray, you know, helped to auspice this study. What they did was they had a look at whether if you did have early intervention for people with eating disorders, how would that affect the outcomes and how would it affect the cost? And they worked out that the it would be a fifth of the cost. So let's say you've got a million dollars and if you can intervene early for $200,000 to get someone just as, to get them better, that's five more people you can treat, isn't it? Or four more people. But they also found the outcomes were much better as well. And the analogy I often use, and, and unfortunately we've had a culture too in in medicine, in eating disorders where people say, I oh, know you're not sick enough. You know, you don't need admission, your weight's not low enough, all that sort of, I call it rubbish. It's, we know it's rubbish. But can we imagine someone having a cervical, you know, a pap smear and being told, oh, you've got a few precancerous cells, but let's wait till it's all malignant spread through your body, then then we can help you. Yeah, or your blood pressure, yeah, it's high, but let's wait till you get, you know, heart disease. So or if someone starts smoking, would we want them to stop them early or wait till they've got lung cancer? So early intervention makes our lives easier, it gets people well quicker, and it costs a lot less. Because once someone's, it's very costly, as again, the another butterfly report showed the cost of eating disorders is very high for our community. It's huge. Yeah, huge. both in health costs, yes. but also loss of employment, loss of opportunity, carer costs, them not being able to work. They're just, it's like a, the ripples are huge. Oh, the ripples are, are massive, and as you say, for that whole family unit. Yeah, and I'm managing about economic costs because that's that's how another thing I learned in my business studies. That's how bureaucrats have to sort of somehow translate human suffering and how we allocate resources into money because that's then you can compare diabetes with eating disorders or whatever and just try and get a good return on your investment. But of course, we're not really interested in the economics. We're interested in the relief. Well, I am the relieving of human suffering and setting people free to be the live the sort of life that they. They, they should be living, they're, they're capable of living. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the impact of COVID on the rise in self-reported eating disorders can't be ignored. Being in lockdown and forced isolation turned even more people's attention to what they're eating, how they were or weren't moving, and intensified focus on their body image. Closure of schools, universities, work, drastically increased feelings of isolation and promoted a more sedentary lifestyle. What have you and your team noted as changes for those with an eating disorder and those now presenting with disordered eating behaviours? Yeah, I must admit this really hit me by surprise. When when COVID came, of course, our focuses were on trying to, I remember I was on a roster at the hospital to be there for intensive care doctors because we thought they'd be traumatised by the number of people that mm. they might have to ventilate or wouldn't be able to ventilate. But I don't think we anticipated at the beginning the mental health costs and specifically the eating disorder increases. So I know that at QUEDS, we were getting a 20% increase in presentations every year until COVID hit, then it became a 100% increase. So just to put that in perspective, every month we would get 60 calls and now we get 120 calls a month. So that was a massive increase. And there have been quite a few articles written about the, the reasons, and you've listed some of them. And I think the other ones that people lost their 
one of the best social antidotes and preventions to all mental health problems is is human connection. And uh, I was just sharing with you before this podcast that I went to the ANZ Autumn Series workshop, and it was so good for my mental health to be mixing with scores of other health professionals that I've been seeing on a computer over the last two years. And it was just, yeah, good for our health. So they lost that connectivity. People had great trouble getting to see their GP, seeing their psychologist often for months they couldn't. And as you say, yeah, a lot of young people were were quite traumatised by not being able to go to uni for months. Again, that's a protective factor. So I think we saw, I think I saw the same sort of eating disorders, but just many, many more of them, sadly. Mm. I think what I noticed in my clients is a lo- that loss of routine, the structure, and as much as it was great to see telehealth really come into its own, it was very difficult for them to get that same sense of connection and, I guess, effectiveness when it is over the phone. They've got other distractions or, or on Zoom, sorry, but, you know, I think being able to have that that connection, that literally walking into a room, even just having some, for some people, the only connection that they were having with the outside world was going to appointments, sitting in the waiting room, seeing their therapist. And then when that was taken away, I mean, we all know eating disorders thrive in isolation. So it was sort of the perfect, the perfect storm, put that, put grocery shortages and restrictions and all of that into play and not being able to see family. It was just a nightmare for people. Absolutely. And also just the anxiety that affected all of us of just Seeing terrible things on the bad news on the on the on the media about COVID day after day and the numbers, you know, anorexia loves numbers, but just all those numbers. I think we can even forget how, how just terrifying it was for all of us and unsettling. And you know, eating disorders in a way are a way to deal with anxiety. And if that anxiety is heightened, we we all revert to our whatever we're we're trying to deal with way we're trying to deal with anxiety. Oh, absolutely. And then let alone looking onto social media where everyone's concerned about, are we going to come out of COVID with, with more kilos on? Or it was just crazy the way that everyone started to focus on, you know, exercise and what people were eating. And I mean, they started calling it COVID kilos and all of these things. I couldn't believe it. I was like, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and this is the focus. Mm. How sad is that? Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just yeah. awful. Yeah, it's lovely that we're seeming to be coming out of that. Definitely. I think we're all very, very relieved. (laughs) What do you think of the statement, it's not the weight, it's the nutrition? If you get the nutrition right, the weight takes care of itself. I totally agree. Like I 110% agree. For me, the the less experienced a clinician is, the more likely they're to focus on weight. You know, and part of my job is, is beaming in to teams all around Queensland and Australia as Less experienced clinicians are trying to help someone locally, and whether it's Bundaberg or, or Rocky or, or out in St. George, to help someone with an eating disorder. And if, if people are less experienced, they say, oh, they've, they've lost 200 grams in the last week. And, you know, for me, that means they've had a bowel motion. So that's not really relevant to what we're trying to do. And so anorexia loves getting obsessed with weight. I really couldn't give a toss about it. I mean, obviously, if someone's extremely underweight, that is useful knowledge, but it's weight is really just a sign to what may be happening for me, and I'd rather know what is happening. And yeah. so I have 10 things that I look at before I look at weight to assess how someone's going in their illness or in their recovery, and they include a long range of medical parameters to look at someone's nutrition level. For example, are they menstruating? What's their blood pressure like? Because when people don't have enough nutrition, the blood pressure is low. What's happening with their heart rate? What happens with their heart rate and blood pressure when they go from sitting to standing? because that's quite abnormal and unstable in people's inadequate nutrition for the heart. Are they maintaining normal glucose levels? Because if they're not giving enough nourishment each day, their glucose levels will drop. Have their white cells and then that we use to fight infection that are produced in the bone marrow dropped because they will predictably drop with someone with malnutrition? Have they got raised liver function enzymes? And then I want to look at their brain function. And you know, many of your listeners will know about the effects of brain starvation. And starvation to the brain, if the brain's not getting enough nourishment every day and the brain uses 20% of our energy, it will go into a starvation mode, which is a very black and white thinking where the brain develops what I call the three R's, rules, rituals, and rigidity. And it's it doesn't do go with the flow very well. Hey, you want to come out of our place for a pizza? And the star brain will go, oh, it's like a rabbit in the headlights. And so once someone's getting adequate nutrition to their brain for weeks or months, and this is someone of any weight and of any eating disorder too, they start to get that humor back. 
the ability to stand back and look at their own thoughts, the flexibility of thinking, the emotional connection with other people rather than worrying about rules and numbers. I've just listed 10 or 11 things that I would look at and and then the other thing I would look at is, which is really important, what is their daily intake of energy and what's their output of energy? Because we, when I say we, dietitians and doctors working there, we know how much energy you need just to be lying in bed all day for your heart, your lungs, your kidneys and everything to work. And if you're having less than that every day, it's not going to be a good outcome. And so, and if you're really showing signs of malnourishment, you're going to need more than what your average person needs. And another thing I say to folks is, if someone with anorexia who's still ill goes on a normal diet, they will never get well. They have to go on a therapeutic diet, which is one to re-nourish, restore. And I never use the word put on weight. I would say maybe restore weight, but I'm more likely to just say, get enough nourishment every day for the next few months until all these organs start getting a tick rather than a cross. And I often draw a picture of their body with them and their brain and say, let's try and get all these things turned back on. And then that's the right amount for you. Yeah, I think that's such a great way to look mm. at it because language, well, I, I just remember <laughs> the difference between cl- clinicians that I connected with and didn't connect with when I was unwell was definitely in the language and the way that they communicated things to me because it just makes such a difference in the way that you take it in or the way that your eating disorder just completely sort of rebuts it and goes, we're not even going to listen to what what is being said. So it's just getting that little window of being able to go, okay, I see why I need to do this. And, and I was helped greatly in this by a fantastic dietitian called Shane Jeffrey, who I know, but if you haven't got had him on your program, I think. He's coming on. Oh, that's is. good because he, it was from him I got that language of looking at someone's daily needs rather yeah. than their weight. And I, I think I found that's a much, but just the word weight triggers anyone with anorexia. They won't hear the next thing you say anyway. Exactly. You know, but, exactly. But we all, it's about, are you open to giving yourself what you need? And some people aren't. There's issues of self-worth. So then you can work on that. Yes. It's so, so important. A huge stress and incredible fear of many people with eating disorders is, of course, being weighed. Could this process not be at least a little less threatening by GPs continuing the practice of tracking a person's growth through adolescence, as happens from birth to four years of age? What are the present mechanisms of determining an individual's normal weight and height if this personal information hasn't been recorded for 10 or more years? For example, a 14-year-old presenting with eating disorder behaviours that could have possibly been at play and undetected for a year or two and affected natural growth and and maturation, BMI, etc. I think my answer to this is going to be similar to the question a couple back, which is I always sidestep the issue of normal weight. For me, the normal weight is the weight at which you're body and brain function well. And so I would just go through that checklist with my patient mm. and, and ask them, do you think your brain's functioning well at the moment? Do you think it's functioning like a brain that's got enough nourishment? How are your ovaries working? You know, oh, it's been a year since I've had a period. Well, do you think we, I think we should listen to your body, you know, and, and, and base it on that. So I've got some rough numbers in my mind, but they just get rougher and rougher as time goes on because it's more about whether they're getting enough to, to function Yeah, absolutely. Parents and carers have come to understand that there are no magic numbers when it comes to true recovery from eating disorders. When it comes to an individual with anorexia, age is definitely not the best determinant for someone to be in charge of their own care or even to know what is best for them. How do we ensure parents and carers stay involved in their loved one's treatment process when a person is not truly recovered but legally is at an age to exclude them from involvement? Yeah, that's a great question. So when people reach the age of 18, which is, you know, recognised as they are adults, what I want to look at is, are they behaving like an adult? Because an adult involves showing that you can look after yourself. And if there seem to be issues there due to illness, and this can be any illness, doesn't have to be anorexia, you know, I would really be spending a lot of time saying, well, can we get your allies, the people who are interested in, in, in you getting better in the room? for our consultations. And most people are, are open to that, actually. I mean, sometimes there's breakdowns in relationships and there's all sorts of things, but uh, even if it's not the care of somebody, a close friend who really has their back, who's not just someone who's allied with the anorexia, you know, if as long as there's someone who's allied with them getting better. And often I find parents are okay if they know that there's someone in there, even if it's an auntie or someone who they've got a, a good relationship with who's who can be part of the team. I think that's the key. 
Yeah, it, I think it was so important for me having, you know, my parents involved because there was so, it didn't matter whether I was 15 or I was 25, mm. I had absolutely no no real control over whether I was sitting in my eating disorder self or my healthy self. or And, and also really, I think you're in a bit of a bubble when you're in an eating disorder in terms of I certainly at, at 25 wasn't as mature or aware of, of life and had experiences like my other friends who were 25. Mm. And so I think it sort of, it does keep you very, very stunted and it's so important to have those other outside people going, hang on a minute here, have you thought about this perspective? Because as you say, it's very black and white, it's very tunnel visioned. Yeah. And sometimes I've had patients say, you know, I just want to get everyone off my back. Yeah. And I say, that's what I want too. What do you think you could do to get them off your back? And they go, oh, guess who I ate more, <laughs> for example. So yeah, look, I agree. Let's Let's try and get the GP and your specialist and your parents, let's try and reduce their anxiety by actually doing something. Yeah. yeah. So, so even if they're not in the room physically, sometimes we get them in the room in that, how do we improve that oh, relationship? So it's a more adult relationship. Absolutely. I had a client the other day say to me, she'd gone and visited some friends and she said, I just don't understand. They're all acting so worried and so, and they're just being all so dramatic. I said, now, we just have a think about this. There was no, if there was no reason for them to be that way, do you think that they would just choose to just for fun be concerned and dramatic? And if I was, if the roles were reversed here and you were saying this to me, or if I was saying this to you, what do you think your advice would be to me? Yeah. And mm. yeah, because I think the eating disorder just doesn't, doesn't allow you to see the reality yeah, of the situation. Yeah, say something similar in that. So you've told me your GP's worried, your dietitian's concerned, your mum's really worried, dad's worried too, and your big sister's worried, and your best friend is also concerned. I'm thinking... There's two possibilities. One is that they're all just crazy or just making, trying to make your life difficult. Or another possibility is that there's something you know, about your illness that's, that, that, that would worry anyone. What, have you got any thoughts about which of those two it might be? And instantly the person will just laugh or realise that, of course, that's, that there's a reason for people worrying. And it's almost like anorexia or eating disorders, they work very much on emotion, you know, and and make the person feel something very strong. And I would say, well, that's that's your emotions. What does your reason or your logic tell you? Does it tell you the same thing or something different? Because it's almost like I think helping people to recover from anorexia is helping them to, to pay more attention to the second thought rather than their first thought. Yes. Yeah, you know, the yeah. first thought is, I'm fine. The second, first thought is, I can't put on weight. I say, well, okay, well, that's your first. And it sounds like there's a strong feeling there. What's... Any other thoughts? You know, what have other people had other thoughts about this? But it's it's very powerful. You know, we all listen to our feelings. But and the other thing I ask is, do you think feelings are always true? You know, and often people will say, no, no, yeah, they're not always true. But they're very powerful. Massive yeah. mantra for my clients, and they yeah. hear it all the time. They probably they probably sound like a broken record. Is now, that's a feeling, not a fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a feeling, not a fact. Yeah. And it's so important. I've, I used to have that written down on multiple pieces mm. of paper everywhere to remind myself that even though this might be a really, really strong feeling that I'm experiencing right now, it is a feeling, doesn't necessarily make it a fact. Yeah. And I always like to ask questions when I'm doing therapy rather than tell them things. I would say, is a feeling a fact? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love that. You know, one of the things I would like to ask you is I get clients often who have been given that severe and enduring diagnosis mm. and therefore that changes the way that they are treated when they enter the hospital system. And a lot of people say to me just how that then makes them feel like, well, what's the point in fighting anymore. And I myself experienced similar things in, in my own recovery. And I know that that was basically the last straw and took any shred of hope that I had away from me. What are your views on that? Well, I think we're fortunate in that there's actually been some really good published research about this by Stephen Towers and Philippa Hay they can, and others that conducted a, a large, very impressive study looking at some treatments that might be helpful for people with severe long-standing illness that where other more traditional treatments haven't worked. And what they found in their in their study, which can easily be found if people want to Google it, is that, well, 
what they they altered traditional treatments to make them non-weight based and to be based on a collaborative approach to looking at life goals. So that was the uh, the approach they took, and they also I saw the person intensively every week for forty weeks because I think talking about feelings often clinicians respond with their feelings to people with this sort of situation. They go, oh, what's the point? We won't be able to get them better. Well, they, it's very confronting to see someone not getting better, so they sort of avoid seeing them, naturally. Maybe only see them every couple of months. But what they found with this study was that large numbers of the people in that group got better on terms of their measures, which were quality of life mainly, but they also got better in terms of their weight improving, even though that wasn't a goal. And the dropout rate was much lower than other studies, 15% dropped out. This study was done in the UK and in Australia, and the key, and so I've used this many times with people actually who have a severe and enduring illness and they're, they're almost understandably traumatized by treatment. And I just said, let's take a different tack. I'm not going to be measuring your weight or focusing on that. I really want to spend some time with you finding out what your personal goals are. That might be about relationships, study, or more independence. And we can, then we can work together for at least 40 hours. That's a long time, putting our heads together about how to help you with that. We can bring your family and anyone else into those sessions. And we can have some boundaries around that. Like if, if you're going to die within a few hours, could your blood tests, you know, if you want me to intervene, get to the emergency department and fix that up. But rather than a long admission, we can do that too. And no one, in my experience, wants to die. They just want to be able to try. And funnily enough, what I've found with a lot of those folks is then after about the 10th session, they say, if I'm going to achieve some of these goals, I'm going to need to do something about my nutrition, aren't I? <laughs> but it's them saying it, not not me. And none of us like being told what to do, do we? No. Um, and so then we could say, well, maybe we could have a look at that. So, yeah, it's a very effective approach, I've found. Absolutely. I think it's those light bulb moments. When you have them yourself, mm. it's just a very, very different, yeah, it, it, yeah, you just take it very differently. And we have to hold the hope as clinicians because anorexia has a habit of beating the hope out of people. And, you know, I know one person who had 150 admissions and she's flourishing now. Yeah. There's, there's no limit to really when you should, there's no time when you should give up, in my view. But also we should respect people's wishes when they've had long during illness about what intervention they want and how much involvement. And that can be reviewed all the time. It's a flexible thing about how active we are. Oh, absolutely. But I think, as you say, that holding that hope yeah. is one of the most important things. Yeah. And I say that to parents and carers, clinicians, because I know for me that if my, my mum was amazing at holding that hope, even when every other yeah. professional was telling her, you are, you're mad. Yeah. And it was that hope of her saying, I know my little girl is there and I will not mm. stop fighting for you, just made me go, well, well, maybe, maybe I'll give it one more go. And I think just that hope and that holding that little bit of light is just more important than people can begin to imagine. Yeah. Your podcast listeners won't be seeing all the nodding I'm doing, but I, <laughs> I've seen that happen so many times yeah. in Breakers Hopeless Cases, having that turning point. And, and then, and I always say when people with eating disorders recover, they go on to do amazing things in my view, because there are some aspects of the, maybe the personality of people who are more prone to get it, of being organised driven, conscientious, you know, be able to get their shit together. <laughs> they cannot, and often very creative too. And they, they've, and to dig, to recover, they've had to dig deep and find aspects of themselves that, that normals haven't, you know, maybe yeah. found, which is, yeah, how to stand back and, and critically examine your feelings, how to problem solve, how to be creative, how to value yourself, yeah, how to deal with disappointment. So the, the person who's recovered has actually learned double what the average person has learned in just life skills anyway, and they can pass those on to all sorts of people in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I often say to people, I think I know myself inside out, back to front more, <laughs> more than more than I ever would have if I hadn't hadn't been through what I had. Yeah, growth doesn't come without pain. Exactly. And so there's a lot of growth that's happened for anyone who's recovered. Definitely. With the increasing public adoption of what Dr. Susan Hart refers to as health halos, alongside the rise in veganism, how does the present model of hospital care manage these challenges through the inpatient-outpatient recovery journey? Yeah, I might need a bit of clarification on what that question's referring to. 
So, you know, these these ideas that we have out there in the media around you know, different superfoods and different ways of being healthy, so to speak. Mm. And if we adopt this particular way of way of being or li- lifestyle, well, they're calling it a lifestyle choice, veganism, that sort of thing. And people are obviously entering into the health system, believing that that's, you know, how they want to be living their lives. How does that get managed? Yeah, I thought you meant that. I just want clarification. I've worked for yeah twenty years in an assessment clinic where new people present with eating disorders. So, and whenever there's a new movement or diet or fetish, I like to call it. It's like like in the West, we seem to have these fetishes around food. I just see a new wave of eating disorders. So, veganism, which I'm philosophically very supportive of. Trouble is, young people become vegan, but they don't replace it with adequate energy so their brains get starved. They just say, oh, I won't be having lunch today because it's not vegan. You know, it's provided that's not a way, a healthy way to be sustainably vegan. You know, the carb-free diets, as I explained to my patients, your brain only operates on one molecule, only one molecule, that's glucose. And you can really only get that from carbs. So you need carbs. And then we've got dairy-free and a lot of, in a lot of complementary medicine, which I've got a lot of time for, but sometimes there's suggestions for people to cut out and but I think whenever someone's eliminating a major food group or gluten, you know, whatever it is, and it becomes a fashion, yeah, you get a wave of eating disorders. And some of those people will die. Like, this is serious stuff. For me, it's like, oh, let's experiment with giving a group of people cigarettes to smoke, see what happens. You know, these diets are dangerous. And so, and clean eating, that's another one, paleo, mm. don't get me started, all these things. And I've never, ever known a dietitian who's a qualified professional to recommend any of these diets. Dietitians, in my experience, recommend that people have add stuff to their diet rather than removing stuff from their diet. But I think there's a human need to feel in control and to see the magic in what we eat, the idea of superfoods, which is mainly rubbish. And there's not enough emphasis on, it's boring, but adequate regular nutrition energy. Like Energy is the main deficiency a lot of people have. There is a book that the director, this is a bit of a digression, but there's a book the director of endocrinology at the Royal Brisbane gave me, and it was called No Periods, What's Next? And it was written by three women who had problems with infertility and not being able to get periods. And it was a very thick book, and they reviewed all the evidence. And it wasn't about eating disorders at all, but the main conclusion they came to was that the reason most women have problems with not being able to have children because their periods stop is because they're exercising too much or not eating enough. And they didn't call it an eating disorder, but it's just the aesthetic ideal of what is a healthy appearance is not really in keeping with a functioning body. So I, I am going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I think there's not just enough, there's just not enough education generally about the fact that we need adequate, regular nutrition to, to make all our organs work. And the human body is just this amazing, miraculous machine, but it does need regular fuel. And that's not the message that it's getting through. People say, oh, as long as you have dark chocolate at night, you'll be okay. Or chia seeds, it's not that, you know. So, yeah, there are a lot of crazy messages there. Look, I will say one thing I've liked at Wandi Nerida is that there's a chef and the food is often sourced from the garden and it's appealing and it's nutritious and it's visually enjoyable and they have a nice view when they're eating. And I think that has, even though it's still challenging for them, I think that has helped a lot. So I think in hospital things, we can make things attractive and nourishing, but no one's just going to get better on fruit and vegetables. And often what I say to my, when I ask people, how did they get into trouble with eating? So they say, well, I just started off by trying to eat healthy. And I often say, it seems you've eaten so healthy that you're now unhealthy. You're in a hospital now. Mm, mm. So maybe we need to look at, redefine what health is. Yeah. On on the note of, of the food at Wandi Nerida, you know, vastly different to the food that someone will be receiving in a in a public hospital setting. And I know that a lot of my clients talk to me about how they, you know, feel after hospital food. What What is your take on that? And how do you think that could possibly be improved? I was involved in the hospital where there were there was some one of some of our patients in the eating sort of unit were complaining about the change in the menu at the hospital. And so the dietitians took it upon themselves to survey the whole hospital, actually. Mm. And they found the only people unhappy with the food were the people with anorexia. So <laughs> sometimes I think, I'm thinking, is it anorexia or the person that's concerned? Because if there's carbs and fat and, you know, and lasagna and things like that, it it could be the anorexia. So I just sort of, I'd always look at both sides of that. 
And, you know, 1D narrative, we still use supplements, for example, things like sostagen and resource, because not everyone can eat all that beautiful food because the anorexia still won't let them. And, and we have a non-negotiable about everyone's got to have the nutrition they need every day. So it's a, yeah, I guess there's two sides to that story. I think we can do a lot more to make it nourishing and adequate. But if it's just what the anorexia wants, we're not going to get anywhere. You know, you, for example, you can't get better with a high fiber diet rich in fruit and vegetables, which is sort of your average healthy diet. If you've got anorexia, you're going to need a lot of, and I, again, I always say to people with anorexia, I've only seen people get better if they have one of these four things. They always cry by the end of it. I say pasta, that's to one tier comes then. Potatoes, another tier, rice or bread. So, yeah, that's the hard truth. Yeah, because those things have really good energy sources for the brain, especially, which we're trying to restore. Yeah. So, you know, it's got to have those things in it. I do recall a doctor saying a similar thing to me and some tears talk falling down my face. Yeah. I was told, so all those <laughs> the realization I hit me that, oh. All those Irish and Italian and Chinese mothers were right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, as a clinician, what do you hold hope for in terms of the future of eating disorder treatment in Australia? I'm really excited because I've seen stigma come down. And, you know, I know my daughter's friends who've had eating issues. They're talking about it openly and not in a way that there's any stigma or shame. So I think, you know, the brave people, many of them in the public spotlight already, who've come out and talked about the challenges with the conditions, including Olympic athletes and all sorts of people, I think it's really helped reduce the stigma. And that means that more people will seek help early. But one thing I'm really passionate about is prevention. And we do actually have some really good studies, again, done in Australia by Susan Paxton and other researchers, finding effective ways to reduce the, the onset of eating disorders. And they include going into primary schools and getting primary school kids to to look at look at how to critique media messages, look at how to have a more inclusive school community where people who are different are not excluded. And there's no focus on food or weight or anything in these very effective interventions. And that can actually reduce the number of people getting disorders. But there's not enough resources going into prevention. You know, we, we still are putting the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather than putting the fence at the top of the cliff. And so I think we can do a lot more with prevention. In terms of treatment, there are other exciting treatments coming in. And I think a lot of them are, you know, if you like, we had our first wave of treatments like CBTE and FBT, but now we're getting schema-based and more process-based treatments and narrative treatments. I saw you had that as your topic last week. I think there's a lot to be said there. But the more we get really smart minds and, and making it, it's an attractive area for clinicians now, I think, where it wasn't so much 20 years ago. So I think we're getting a lot of bright young minds, actually, and a lot of them with lived experience as well, coming in and working in the area. So I feel very optimistic, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of change happening, and I think it's it's really exciting to, as you say, see that stigma coming down, which was one of the aims of of doing this podcast. Actually, was to really get rid of that those myths and stigma. And um, I think it's exciting to see lived experience being recognised so much more widely, and so many more recovery coaches coming through, and people standing up and going, "That was that was the thing that really helped." Was finally feeling like I was understood and had kind of that extra support alongside, and working within that that multidisciplinary team context as well. Totally agree. So, finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? I think. My words of wisdom, which mainly come from the words of wisdom of people I know who've recovered, would be, you can get better, you will get better. Find, just find one clinician, whether they're a recovery coach or a psychiatrist or a GP, who you know, feel you can work with. If you don't feel you can work with them, you're right. Your gut instinct is right. They're not the right person for you. So I think until you find someone you can trust, and then... You're going to need courage because it's going to be scary to recover, but be open to trying experiments, different things that that clinician suggests. And, you know, I love the words of Carolyn Costner in her Eight Keys of Recovery, which are there's two things that are definitely true. One is it's all about the food. You have to change what you eat. And secondly, it's not about the food. It's about how to deal with feelings and, and thoughts. And there's two other things that she says that I really like. I think they're also in the Eight Keys of Recovery. And one is... You can't do it on your own. You're going to need help with the thing. And the second thing is only you can do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, to. only you can reach out and and decide to to do the scary thing of trying a different way to live. But it's worth it. You you can't even imagine how much better your life will be once you climb that mountain. And the view is very good at the top. I can assure you from what I've heard from lots of people. Absolutely, I think words can words can't describe how good it is. I often sort of really struggle with to really accurately articulate to someone what it's like to have gone from being in the depths of anorexia to having a life of freedom. And there's not really many strong enough words in the English language to describe that euphoria of what it's like to to finally be on the other side. And, and it was interesting, I was talking to a colleague of mine who has been fully recovered now for, for over eight years. And she was saying that, like me, she still has these random moments where, you know, you're busy deciding and you're ordering all these share plates at a restaurant and you're just enjoying the textures and the flavors and you're in the moment and you're having drinks and you just stop and go, did I ever think this was going to be possible? No. And did anyone ever think, you know, anyone ever tell me that I was ever going to be able to do this? No. They all said, oh, you'll still have the thoughts and you'll still have to manage it. And and it's it's not. You can be fully, fully free and it is amazing and it's absolutely worth fighting for. Couldn't agree more, Millie. Thank you so much for joining me today. I just really, really appreciate it. And you've given our listeners so much to to think about and so many little gems of wisdom. So thank you. And I think your work is amazing. And I have so much respect and admiration for you. Thanks, Millie. It's been a pleasure. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think like how can people not hear what's going on in my head you get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do there is hope at ended.org.au